Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 81. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. It's a late night recording here on Independence Day, actually, of all days. Yeah, so to our all of our American listeners, happy 4th of July. Yeah, you're probably not going to get this one for like a, a week or so until afterwards, but know that our thoughts were with you at this time. It's interesting because Canada Day is just a few days before 4th of July, and I don't know about you, Matt, but it was a pretty uneventful Canada Day over here. Yeah, we actually try, We took a crack at recording this episode on Canada Day, and, or was it the day after Canada Day? And we discussed how lame Canada Day was this week, yeah. <laughs> uh, because or this year because the uh, the COVID thing and also the weather was just horrible. So now uh, we we couldn't finish the episode because our kids were free or my kid was freaking out. And it just wasn't possible. There was always screaming. So we had to reschedule it. Now we're on Independence Day. So hopefully your Independence Day was more eventful than our Canada yeah. Day, which shouldn't have been too hard. Yeah. So back onto the topic of jujitsu. Matt, this episode is your episode. You had a good suggestion, which is to talk about teaching methodologies. Now, that's a pretty broad topic on its surface, but maybe you can explain a bit what you mean by that and what you want to cover here today. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine you are uh, a white belt on your first day or even you on your first day and you walked into jujitsu class and you didn't really know what to expect, right? Like it's a huge, vast topic. It's a basically a, a language that you're learning and there's so much material to learn and you do your first class. It's like, you know, and now you fast forward your black belt. And my, my question to myself is like, what do I think would be the best teaching methodology to learn something like jiu-jitsu because it is it is a journey that usually takes 10 years or more to get to your black belt and if you don't have any knowledge on the subject you know you're going to go to a class and you know most most of the time if the instructor's half decent you're going to think that they did an awesome job but then what i realized was as i kept training i realized that some of my first instructors were people that i've had throughout my life really weren't that great and i started to notice the difference between the different teaching styles and you know what what a good instructor what the qualities of a good instructor actually are and, you know, how to tell good instruction from bad instruction. And because jiu-jitsu is so big, there's so many ways you can learn the, the sport, you know. So, for instance, your instructor could be awesome world-class coach like John Danaher or they could literally know nothing about what is actually effective in jiu-jitsu and you're basically like doing a LARPing class, right? So how do you know that you are learning good jujitsu and what really is the best way to learn jujitsu is kind of where I was coming from. So I, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about it a while and 
Hold on, Steve. My cat's fucking scratching the door. Amazing. Fuck. Every right. episode. Fucking okay, so which of the cats we, is it? We need a studio. It's a. It's Raja. <laughs> <laughs> She's the black cat who pukes on everything. Of course. But anyways, um, so yeah, we were talking about teaching methodology. So like one one example of uh, a teaching methodology would be my professor, which is Rob. And Rob basically focuses on you know the conceptual approach. So when he's designing a class, his classes very rarely are like grinding, hard, intense workouts. Uh, you know, I've been to jujitsu classes where the first half hour or even longer are like conditioning and hard training and championship training. Like I've trained with, uh, like when I trained with Bibiano Fernandez, he does this, you know, it's very old school, lots of burpees, lots of squats, like partner drills where you're carrying them in awkward positions and stuff like this. It's like, uh, this is an approach I'll, I'll talk about it later, the pros and cons of an approach like this, but, you know, contrast that to how Rob coaches, you go there and he, there's basically no warm up or there's a, uh, you know, a drill as a warm up, like a fuck your jujitsu or whatever, like a target sparring round. But he basically just, you know, a lot of the time we'll just start talking about systems and, or a specific system, um, or talking about how to conceptualize something as opposed to speed drilling or, a hard cardio workout. So that's one example. It would be Rob, who is very much conceptual. There's lots of theory and uh, usually they'll target spar, but they're not going to do like a crazy workout or anything. And then they usually, you know, most instructors finish with rolling and I think he does too. Then there's another methodology, which would be like that old school jujitsu style that I was talking about where, you know, you come to class and the first half hour or 45 minutes is like, an intense workout and you're absolutely dead by the time it's actually time to do some real jujitsu, you know, and, and the pros and cons to this are, you know, you, you are getting mentally and physically tough because you're, go, you're putting yourself through this crazy workout and then you're going to try and roll when you're exhausted and your body's sore, you know? So in a way, yes, there is benefits to that. But in another way, if you if you only do that and you don't talk about like the conceptual aspect of things, then, you know, you're really just, uh, I think, neglecting what actually jujitsu is. You're just kind of focusing on the physical aspect and not so much on the mental. And then I, I know I'm going off on a long time without letting you say anything, Steve, but I'll just mention like the third main teaching methodology that I see. Um, and that's kind of like, uh, you know, learning sequences. So I know Atos does this a lot and I even have seen Marcelo Garcia do this where, you know, their class, they will basically just Marcelo or whoever will show a, will show a sequence and it basically starts from a takedown or a guard pull, uh, a sweep to get on top, pass the guard, you know, and then get to some kind of dominant position and then finish with a submission or something like that. And you just drill that over and over and over again. And usually it's really high percentage, the moves that are selected and they're really, you know, really good for competition. Or what I've seen Marcelo do is he, he gets his class to do that. And then what he does is he says, okay, now that we've drilled that sequence a bunch, I want you to do the same sort of sequence, the same structure, except pick your favorite techniques. So instead of like, uh, a single leg X sweep, you're going to use, you know, if you prefer to do like a reverse De La Hiva sweep, fine, use that, get the sweep, get on top, you know, and finish with whatever submission you want, but you're, you're drilling a sequence all the way through and you're personalizing it. So, 
That is also awesome because you get really good at funneling and really good at making the game plan that you want to work for a competition. And it's very uh, good for getting reps. But again, you're not really deviating away from, from things that can go wrong and you're not really talking about concept. It's more just really building that muscle memory and that ability to funnel the match where you want it. So right there is three methodologies that are all very different from each other and all have different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And this is something that I've put a lot of thought into over the years. And a lot of it comes down to what people have tried to use to teach me that I have either liked or hated. (laughs) I think you could probably relate. Like, you know, we've all been to different instructors who've used different approaches. And sometimes things really resonate with you. And sometimes things just really repel you. And sometimes, especially early on in your journey, you just stick with things because you don't know any better. I mean, When I started jujitsu, I started at a Gracie Baja, so we always use the Gracie Baja class structure, which is pretty universal, right? Most Gracie Bajas kind of adopt from the same curriculum. So you start off, you've got a, you know, a pretty straightforward warm up, which has a bit to do with jujitsu, but not much. Then there's a few technique of the weeks and then you spar. And I didn't know any better for a long time. And the challenge with that approach is, or at least the way that it was taught to me, is it comes across as being pretty impersonal, honestly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it feels kind of like, you know, everyone's just going in there through the exact same process. There isn't really a lot of thought put into as to whether these techniques are things that would actually benefit you. Um, You know, it's not very personalized. The instructor, a lot of the time, isn't really deviating from the plan if things aren't resonating with the students. And so you absorb all of this information and a lot of it speaks to you and a lot of it doesn't. But it's not a very systemized game plan Mm -hmm. in terms of the way that it's put together. It's just a grab bag of techniques. And of course, many, many gyms do this. I mean, probably most gyms teach this way. And if that's all you've ever known, then you're not going to realize that maybe the grass is greener elsewhere. Now, I've also trained at places where they do the <laughs> the Brazilian approach, you know, where basically they kill you with exercise beforehand. And really, it's more of an exercise in cardio than it actually is at learning jujitsu. And this is a very old school approach. It kind of stems back to the old Valley Tudo UFC days where, you know, they would try to toughen you up. And that's all great and all. But the challenge with that approach is you might be getting in shape, but you're not really learning jujitsu a lot of the time. I mean, as a result, you might wind up becoming a more effective grappler just because you become more of an athlete and you're tougher, but is your jujitsu improving? And I think you really started to see the weaknesses of that back around the 2000s where there were all of these incredible guys who came out of, you know, Brazil or out of Japan and they were just tough as nails. But as soon as the next generation of athletes came up who trained at a more conceptual level, they just tore those guys apart because that old school kind of like beat yourself up mentality it kind of has a ceiling to it. You're not really going to be able to achieve the highest levels a lot of the time if there's really good competition out there. And if you look at the best in class right now, they all recommend training in systems. They recommend training intelligently and not just burning yourself out. Additionally, if you want to be an athlete for the long term, it's probably not in your best interests to do things that are going to burn you out or cause serious harm to your body. So I've kind of come away with the approach now that I like to teach class 
in concepts. And by that, I mean, I like to have a guiding thing that I want to tie everything together into a class. Like when I go in and teach, I don't want to just have three techniques that I want to show today. What I want to do is I want to have a big high level principle that I want people to understand. And I want to talk about that. And it sounds similar to what you say Rob does, where basically I open the class with kind of 10 or 15 minutes of just talking. And then from there, I'll show a few moves that illustrate the concept I was talking about. They're not three random moves. They're three things that kind of illustrate this principle. And then we spar. And a lot of the time, I'll try to tie the sparring positionally back to what we were trying to learn. So I like to structure my classes based on concepts as opposed to based on a handful of moves. And, you know, you've mentioned that too, where a lot of the time you'll go into a class and they'll have a series of techniques or a position that we're doing this month. And so for a month, maybe you'll do various side control escapes. And although that is helpful, it's definitely better than not training at all. It isn't really structured in such a way that I think people will get maximal benefit out of it, Mm. because if nothing else, it encourages people to collect moves, which is never a good idea. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with you, Steve. And I also like the approach of just focusing on a concept as opposed to moves. I think over the last few years with a, with the explosion of conceptual and systems-based approach to jiu-jitsu, the, the question has become, is it more valuable to become a like a technique-based grappler or a concept-based grappler? And I kind of remember what mom used to tell me, which was everything in moderation, which basically means a little bit of everything is kind of healthy for you. And I think that that is ultimately the best approach is to you know, keep it fresh and mix it up and use different teaching styles just because, you know, uh, depending on your, the purpose of your training, you know, if you're training for a competition, I think it totally makes sense to have regular training where you're, you know, you're doing your conditioning, you're getting tired, and then you're rolling after as well when you're tired, because it's really going to simulate the discomfort, right? But if you, if you're going in there to learn a new system or to learn a new position or something like that, and you get extremely tired you know doing calisthenics for 45 minutes and then you got to use your brain to to start to absorb information after that your brain doesn't really want to do that you know you kind of need to set the training environment as the instructor so that people are not so discomforted that they can't absorb information and they get discouraged but also not so comfortable that they uh, are bored and become complacent so it, it is a challenge and it is a fine balance to create a for, as an instructor but i think it is a, a little bit of everything is good depending on the depending on the scenario and usually a lot of the time because you're only training for an hour or you know sometimes 2 hours it's amazing how fast it goes by so you really in the end, at the end of the day, I find that less can be more. And if you try and do too much, like as you mentioned, the, you know, three techniques of the day approach, which I've certainly done before, you know, when I was an inexperienced instructor, I did that all the time. And you find sometimes you're like, man, I think we're covering too much material, you know, and, and I've done seminars before where I'm like, I I think back on it. And I'm like, "Eh, you know, I think we probably did a you know, one technique too many. We shouldn't have done that last technique. It would have been better for everyone if we had just cut it off there. But, you know, you kind of you kind of live and learn and, and you make adjustments as you go on. Yeah, this is an experience that I've had at a lot of seminars where it's just technique overload. And I think maybe some seminar presenters feel this pressure that they have to show a lot of stuff and they have to show novel, unusual things. 
so that people will feel like they got their money's worth. I mean, who wants to spend a hundred bucks to go to a seminar and just learn how to do an arm bar, right? Well, personally, that's what I would like. (laughs) I get a lot more out of those kinds of seminars, but a lot of the seminars that you go to, there will be eight techniques and many of them are very unusual to the point where they're just not likely to be something you would actually use. And unfortunately, that strategy of focusing on things that are different and focusing on volume, I don't think is a good way to learn. And even within the class structure, I think focusing on lots and lots of different techniques is really not the best way to encourage your students. Now, the reality is there will be the odd technique that just resonates with a certain person and they'll realize that this is the thing for them and they'll start using it and they'll get really good at it and it'll really speak to their game and help them evolve in a certain direction over the years. So that's not to say that the technique approach is bad, but it's kind of like playing the lottery, right? You know, the idea behind the technique approach is if you keep coming to class, you come to class like, you know, a hundred times over a year, I'm going to show you three techniques every class and it's going to be like rolling the dice. Maybe a few of those techniques are really going to stick with you, but the rest of the stuff you're just going to forget as soon as you get off the mats. So that's not really an effective way to learn because most of the information you're either not using or you're forgetting. So the thing that I try to focus on these days when I teach is how to take one thing that's really, truly important, and it's going to be important to everybody who's in the class and how do I make that stick so that they don't just forget it afterwards Mm -hmm. and I think that's the great challenge of instructing and of course you know these people ultimately they're paying you right your your job is to provide them not just with time on the mats but also to teach them and there's a lot of competition in the jujitsu scene right now so if you want to really retain your students and make their time valuable you have to really actively think about this and not just make the mistake a lot of instructors do where they just roll in show a few random things without really thinking about it and then just leave yeah i like to have the whole class kind of or at least the whole hour based around either one concept or one position or one you know if it's a sequence that's fine as well but i i like to talk a little bit about it and then you know, we basically get the live, like we target spar the shit out of the position. I find that live training, whether it's going to be light or, uh, you know, like fuck your jujitsu, like targeted or handicapped or whatever kind of, however you're going to modify your target sparring, that there's going to be lots of it. Because that I think is the, the best way to figure out what the predictable reactions are. I used to do a ton of speed drills, you know, like doing uh, 20 leg drags each side like that type of training right and that that does have its place because you smooth movements and you uh, you get a good sweat going you know and you get that muscle memory but you don't hone the ability to apply the technique at the right time that can only happen once you start creating reactions from your opponent right this would be the this would essentially be the uh, equivalent to Kazushi in, in a judo setting is creating that off balance, that reaction where you can put your opponent exactly where you want them and then already be initiating your technique. So like I can practice leg drags till the cows come home on both legs, but if I don't know how to position my body or to coax a certain reaction, then I'm going to be working a lot harder. And, and quite honestly, it's going to be pretty ineffective against really high level players, right? So I need to I need to learn how to use the techniques, when to use these techniques, especially if we're, you know, if we're doing like fuck your jujitsu and I'm practicing 
uh, surviving in the open guard or surviving in the single leg X guard or whatever. I mean, the best way to get good at that is to actually just walk right into that guard and absorb it and get swept a bunch and, you know, whatever happens, happens. But eventually you learn how to base out, how to untangle, and you learn like two or three really good answers for that position. And that's really what you need to do. You don't need to you know, rep something out against someone who's not giving any reactions or not giving any resistance. Well, it comes back to having a goal for why you're training. And it's important to understand that when we talk about concepts and principles and systems thinking, obviously we think this is pretty important, but also this is not the only thing you need. Like I love thinking from a high level and thinking about these big ideas. But the reality is if you don't put any time on the mat and actually get in there and do the reps, you're not going to actually learn anything. I mean, if you think about the way that a kid learns, right, (laughs) you don't sit your two-year-old down and explain grammatical structure to them. And then that's how they learn English or whatever language you speak. What you do is they just learn individual words. And then over hundreds and thousands of repetitions, they're able to string together ideas and eventually just through trial and error, they figure things out. So principles by themselves are not enough. I think, like you said earlier, you need to use a combination of approaches. And that means you need to use these systems ideas, but you also do need to combine them with just time on the mats. And one of the most valuable things you can do to learn while you're on the mats is to have structured goals when you're training. So a lot of classes, they'll just have a free roll at the end of the class. And that's great. I mean, obviously you need to have time free rolling, but before that, I like to have some time doing targeted sparring. And Mm -hmm. the reason why is because if there's a goal that you're trying to teach during class, you want to create an environment where students are practicing towards that goal with a degree of resistance. Like you said, Matt, just doing the reps is not going to be enough because although that might help put some of that movement into muscle memory, moves don't really work unless you can do them against a resisting opponent. And just doing reps against a drill partner is not going to help you as much as some degree of live sparring. But on the other hand of that, If you're doing fully live sparring, you may never get into the position that you want to work. Mm -hmm. And additionally, even if you do get into that position, if you're doing a regular sparring match, it's hard to win if you're trying new things. That's kind of one of the paradoxes about learning is if you want to get good at something, you've got to do it for a while and be bad at it. So Mm -hmm. if you want to learn a new technique, if you're trying to do that in an open sparring environment, you're probably going to get killed every time. And not only is that hard to get a lot of reps in on that technique, but it can also be demoralizing to you as well. So that's one of the reasons I like setting structured training goals, where if my goal, for example, is I want people to understand a specific concept in action, then we'll set up a specific positional situation where we're trying to reproduce situations that show that principle in action. So like an example of that would be, you know, i talk a lot and I do a lot of classes on the elbow knee connection. So if I'm teaching a class on that and I want to illustrate how the elbow knee connection is effective in terms of escaping, we might do some live sparring from side control and I'll get people to work on that. And I'll get people on top to start with minimal resistance and then gradually work it up and up and up as the person on the bottom gets more competent. So 
Just having open sparring, although obviously that's good for your overall effectiveness as a grappler, it can make it hard sometimes to narrow in on and improve on specific techniques or zones that you might otherwise be weak in. Yeah, I think like we basically do open sparring every class, but only after we do like all the learning and the target sparring as well. The open sparring I kind of look at as like a reward, you know, like that's kind of like the fun part. Uh, you you know there's and there's fun ways to mix it up too you can do like elimination rounds like king of the hill styles target sparring we do that a lot at the gym where we line everyone up and we have people in the middle fighting for their position and if you win you stay in the middle and if you lose you go back to the line or whatever so you can mix it up really easily and keep your classes fresh but if you if you're just every time as an instructor doing like, you know, we're going to learn, we're going to do a quick warm up, do these three techniques and then just roll. I'm not saying that that's always bad, uh, that, you know, you could certainly do that once in a while and it would, you you know, it'd probably be pretty effective, but it's really important to do different types of things, each class, different class structures, depending on the application. If you do the same class structure every time, to me, that basically just says, I've found the best way to teach, you know, like this is, this is the best way and there's no need to deviate away from it because this is just the best way. So uh, if you're saying that, that's kind of a bold statement. And as an instructor, I kind of, I'm kind of on a quest to find the, what I think is the best way to do a class, you know, a combination of what is effective. Can it uh, stick when you teach it? Like, do the, do the people retain the information? And also, is it fun? Is it a class that people still want to come back because you could make your training really effective but extremely difficult and people might not want to come in you know so you have to it's a fine balance it has to be effective and has to be enjoyable as well yeah that's a good point because something that i think a lot of people forget is that the perfect training routine that no one wants to do is inferior to the average training routine that people enjoy doing. (laughs) I think that unfortunately, if you train everyone as if they're going to be world champions, you're ignoring one of the things that's great about jujitsu, which is that it is a martial art for everyone. I mean, yeah, sure. If someone really wants to succeed at the highest level, you're probably going to need to offer them a slightly different training structure. But you also have to bear in mind that everyone has different goals and you've got to bring everyone up along with just your best competitors. Something that you brought up there, which I think is a really important point to touch on, is that you should never really assume that you figured it out when it comes to class structure. And this is one of the things that I think is problematic about gyms that have an official class structure where they have every class structured the same way. And you see this a lot, too, in terms of affiliated clubs, where there might be an overarching way that they prefer to structure their teaching. Mm. And I understand the appeal behind that because it is intended to create a consistent level of quality across the brand but the implication there is hey we figured it out we've got the perfect way to teach and the problem is if that approach is not the best approach and even if it is the best approach it probably won't be forever as the world evolves the issue is that you're creating a world where you cannot improve your teaching vehicles there's a concept that i've heard that i really like which is that You should be able to look at the person that you used to be and the work that you used to do and be embarrassed by that. You know, if you look back at who you were a year ago, you should really look at that person and think, oh man, that was, it was just really embarrassing what that person produced, how that person acted. Because if you think that way, it means that you've grown. It means that you've evolved. If you look back at the person that you were in the past and you think, 
man, that guy was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) What that means is you haven't changed as a person. And that means that your growth has been stunted. Like if you're 40 years old and you look back at who you were in high school and you think that guy was perfect. I mean, what does that say? If you have not evolved significantly in 20 years, that's not the kind of person I'd want to be. So I do kind of worry about overly structured classes in that sense, because you do need the ability to adapt as better methods come in. I mean, even 10 years ago, the way that jujitsu was taught, it was a lot more primitive than what it is now. And I don't see any reason why that'll be different 10 years in the future. It could be that the methods for teaching have become even more sophisticated. If you look at almost any sport, you look at the way that athletes were in prior generations versus the athletes we have today, and the bar just gets higher over time. And A part of that is just superior training methods. So you should always have an open mind to how you can be more effective as an instructor. For sure. And, and you really have to apply yourself when you're putting together lesson plans and things like that. You know, I've gone in and just winged it before. And a lot of the time it doesn't go as smooth as if you actually have, you know, something planned that you want to do. But again, an hour goes by so fast so again, there it comes back to that less is more thing. You know, if you try and cram so much into an hour, it becomes really difficult to start retaining information and it becomes, it asks too much of the brain, you know, because you still want to be able to remember everything that's going on and, and keeping it simple for me, at least, uh, allows me to uh, remember things a lot easier. Whereas if I'm doing so many techniques all in one day, it can get to the point where I'm just drowning. And, uh, and by the time I'm rolling, I'd be lucky if I remember, uh, you know, 25% of it. So shaving away parts of the lesson and down to the bare bones, I think is a really good tool as an instructor to be able to do. Because for me, especially when I was brown belt instructor, I was really, I just loved teaching and I loved showing off stuff that I knew. But then I realized like, is this the best teaching methodology? Because if people around the room aren't able to retain the information and I'm just showing stuff that I know, then I'm not really being a good instructor. I think I think the objective of a good instructor is for people to learn and to have fun and train and safe and, you know, exercise and all that. So if I'm if I'm teaching so much material that it's becoming detrimental, it starts to become a negative. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've <laughs> I think there's a time to do those types of classes that aren't necessarily the most fun, like animal drills and things like that. Like, you know, I, th- I back in the day we used to do those like all the time, like quite often we would be doing animal drills at at one of the gyms that I was going to. And I think that that's great for beginners because it really teaches people sort of what is the standard for basic movements that every jiu-jitsu fighter needs to know. But when you start doing things like an advanced class, you know, and you're starting to do animal drills for 20 minutes, people you know, I think there's a better way to use that chunk of time. I think those, I think that type of a class would be better suited for people who are brand new to jujitsu. You know what I mean? Whereas I think people that are more advanced, they want to, they want to get more of the conceptual stuff and they want to target spar those positions. And I think that's where you're going to see more gain from those people, um, using that methodology. Yeah. I got a question for you. Are you jiggling your leg or something? I am. Yeah. Is that not good? Fucker. Yeah, I can hear that. How can you hear that? Because microphone, these microphones pick up everything. Can you hear this? Are you masturbating? No. Okay. (laughs) It's worth asking. I know how you are. Yes. No, I can't hear anything. Okay. So that's a really 
important point, which is that a lot of the time less is more. And, you know, as someone who has a background in product design, I see this a lot where your intuitive feeling when you're trying to do something or build something is that you should cram as much stuff into it as possible. But the reality is that less is often more, especially when you're teaching. This is something that Josh Waitzkin talked about in The Art of Learning, which is the concept of what he describes as making smaller circles. And by that, he means basically you've got all of these big, complicated ideas. Identify the few things that actually truly matter Mm -hmm. and rip away everything else and just drill those things like crazy. And once you've mastered those core concepts then you can start hanging everything else on top of that because the rest of it is just window dressing. And I try to keep that in mind when I structure my classes. Like, I don't know about you, Matt, but when I'm teaching, I kind of like to break my classes into like a few different sections. First of all, I'll have just a very, very light warm up. Um, usually I, I like it to be jujitsu related. I don't want to ask people to do calisthenics, right? We, we don't have that much time on the mats. If people want to do CrossFit, they can go do CrossFit. They don't need me to teach them how to do that. So if I'm getting a warm up for them to get the blood flowing, I want it to be something that actually has implications to jujitsu. So I'll give them something that ties into actual jujitsu, like uh, martial arts movements and that kind of stuff. Then what I'll do is I'll give them the concept talk where there's a concept I want to talk about during the day. I talk about that a little bit. And so, for example, a concept that I taught recently was the elbow-knee connection. So I talk about what that is, why that's important. Then, of course, you do need to show actual meat and potatoes moves. You can't just not show those at all. Mm. So what I'll do then is I'll pick a few specific scenarios that actually illustrate the concept I want to show. So if I'm talking about the elbow knee connection, I'll show perhaps, you know, from side control, how establishing an elbow knee connection can get you out and allow you to regard your turtle. And maybe I'll show how from mount you can use the elbow knee connection to do the same thing. And maybe I'll show how from top position, if you're trying to pass, you can use the elbow knee connection to achieve the knee cut pass and to prevent your opponent from snaring you in a guard. So all of these things are tied together, not by the fact that they're three different variations of the same move, but they're all tied together because they're related to the concept of the day. They're just specific examples of the one thing I want people to understand. So then we do some positional sparring. Then we do some live rolling because <laughs> like you say, I think there will be a mutiny if you try to run a class without any actual full open sparring. Then afterwards, I like to kind of close class with just a five minute talk to tie it back together to the main principle. So I'll basically get everyone together and I'll say, If there's one thing that you take out of this class today, if you forget everything else, if there's just one thing that I can have you remember and take with you, this is what that one thing should be. And I like to clarify that because it drives back home to people that a lot of the specific variants, like a lot of this stuff is not really where you need your mind to be. It's all about understanding the big ideas and making sure that you apply those to everything. I don't want people to get too tied up on like, how do you do like this particular Delaheva sweep or how do you do this particular gi pass, right? For me, it's more about what is the one principle I want people to understand 
how do I tie a bunch of examples to that? And then how do I close the loop at the end and just remind people of why we're here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I th- also think that just as sometimes as an instructor, less is more when you're teaching. I think that repetition, like repeating things is actually really good. And I think that that is actually a way to make things stick. So when I'm teaching a concept or teaching a specific technique, I'll make sure that I repeat those key moments that you're kind of referring to. I'll repeat those two, three, four times, you know, to to the point where it's like kind of getting uh, a little bit repetitive, but I want that. I want those specific points hammered home. So I think that that really makes the information stick. And I definitely agree with uh, you know before you free roll or whatever you you tie tie a knot at the end and you sort of bring everything full circle, or at least you can sort of reiterate the things that you've gone over so that everyone can see them now systemize, uh, systemized all in one package. And that way it kind of refreshes people from the material that they learned at the beginning of the class. But again, if you're, if you have, you know, that much material that there's like three or four techniques or even more techniques in a class. Now we're getting to the point of having diminishing returns. You know, it's again, less is more. And I find if there's time to be filled, like if a class has 15 or 20 minutes in it and I'm kind of debating should I show something else? Should I squeeze something else? Uh, nowadays, I almost always settle in with no. I would way rather use that time to just positionally spar, get a few targeted sparring rounds in before the free rolling begins, or even do a king of the hill or something like that. So again, teaching less, allowing people to actually play with the material that I show and using it in, in real situations against you know a resisting opponent. That's more where my head's at these days. Yeah, I actually agree with you completely on the topic of repetition. I always try to repeat myself to really drive things home. That's why at the end of these episodes, I always recap, like, what are the mental models we talked about today? I want to be as repetitive as possible. And it's funny because I think there is this perception that being repetitive is bad. Like you always see on TV shows where people say, I'm not going to repeat myself. But in reality, if you want your ideas to stick you need to take a few swings with that hammer to really drive the nail in. You need to repeat yourself over and over again. It's it's at the point now where I will basically repeat myself until someone says, Steve, shut up about that. I get it. You don't need to say it anymore because that's the indication that I've really driven the message home. If something is important, you should definitely repeat yourself because that kind of repetition is what makes that stick in memory for the long term. Yeah, but but one thing's for sure is they're probably not going to f- forget that material, right? So even if definitely. even if they ask you to shut up and they don't need to hear it again, it's like, well, you're still going to go home with the material. You're still going to remember yeah. it. So uh, in a way, I did my job. Well, that's the thing. I would rather teach you one thing three times and have you actually remember that one thing for the rest of your life, I would rather that than teach you three different things that you all immediately forget by the time you go home for dinner. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I I remember we were actually part of the same club, but back in the day, a lot of the times we would just, you would go in and the first thing the instructor would do is he'd be like, oh, now, um, you know, we're going to, we're just going to, we're doing a warm up roll. We're just going to roll light. And essentially it's just free rolling. Like you're basically just, yeah, I, I don't get behind that stuff. Yeah. I love the idea of start the class with a light roll, but it just isn't going to happen. Yeah. It's impossible. Like you could have two old out of shape black belts and put them at the beginning of class and tell them to have a flow roll. And within five minutes, they'll be trying to kill each other. So exactly. if you want to have, inevitable. 
If you want to have a real productive flow role, you need to start putting restrictions on how people train. Like you need to basically say, we're just sparring, guard passing, and then after that reset. If you leave people to have an open role, it will eventually devolve into a fight to the death. Totally. And, uh, you know, using fuck your jujitsu and adding handicaps to the target sparring is awesome. So if, you know, your job is to base out on top again and just walk zombie walk into your opponent's guard and you're not allowed to pass their guard, your, your, your entire goal is don't get swept, then it really, it, it limits what can happen, but you target a lot of a specific thing. So you learn predictable reactions and you, you, you're able to focus on stuff that you wouldn't normally get to focus on if you're free rolling. So that's where I think, um, that type of target sparring is really effective. Plus it's really fun, you know, and you get a lot of reps in positions that you might not normally get to, you know, if people aren't used to playing certain games, it can be a really great way to get a lot of reps in a short amount of time. Plus you're getting a workout and um, it's safe for the most part. I think that's a, a great way to warm up. But generally I, I like to at least do a few movements to get the body warm before we go into some of that stuff. And usually if I do some jujitsu drills, whether they're solo drills, because we do still do solo drills, you know, like inversions and things like that, because it is. Oh, you need to do them. You like need to it, do them. You can't have training yeah. without them, but it's just, are they the focus yeah. or not? And, you know, you got to ask yourself, like, are you going to do, are you going to do solo drills? Are you going to do partner drills? Like, how are you going to structure it? And are you going to overdo it? Because if you overdo it, then that's also negative too. Um, you certainly don't want to do these drills for too long. And then people are just like, okay, like we're wasting time here that that's also not good so knowing when to draw the line and then i think the last thing is sort of tying in whatever kind of movements you're going to do you're going to tie them into um the actual lesson or the position or the system that you're working yeah definitely i really like what you brought up about when you're setting up these constrained training environments training for predictable responses and i think this is a really important way to cultivate good training You know, you brought up before that a lot of the time when people train guard, they just zombie walk into the guard. Why is that? Because we learn the guard, we understand the position. And so subconsciously, especially at a white and blue belt level, you just fall into the guard because that's the position we know. It's our comfort zone. So you just kind of walk in there because you're used to being in the person's guard. But really what you should be doing is setting up the right structure before you ever get into the person's guard. We've talked about this on the podcast before about how the best way to pass a person's guard is not even to get into the guard in the first place. Just don't let them ensnare you. And in order to do that, there's a few preventative steps you have to take. And a lot of clubs just don't train those. They just kind of assume you're going to wind up in the guard and they start from there. And I found sometimes one of the best drills you can do for people is rather than actually drilling the guard itself and saying, okay, we're going to start in the guard, either pass or sweep or submit and then reset. Rather than saying that, we say, we're talking about engagement here. Your job is to get into that person's guard and pass without them even locking up the guard. Mm -hmm. And if they lock up the guard, reset. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter if they sweep. It doesn't even matter if they submit. We're not getting that far in this training. If they are able to ensnare you in the guard, you failed. Reset. Because that's not what we're training here. And I find that when you're teaching that kind of stuff, it's a very, very powerful tool because it makes people realize that 
prevention is a lot better than the cure. Right? Totally. It is much better to not get caught up in someone's guard at all than it is to get into their guard and then have to get out again later. So a big part of what you can do as an instructor to help out your students is not just teach them to go into these positions as their comfort zone, but make sure they're always in a structurally sound position so that they don't just fall back on the positions that they're comfortable with, but that they're always actually going for the best option available to them. Yeah. And, and like what you mentioned about how if you get ensnared in a guard, you lose, like setting boundaries like that. I think that that's a really great way to hammer home kind of what are the things that you're trying to avoid in these high stress scenarios, especially at the higher levels. You know, if you end up in someone's closed guard, for example, it's like you could be there for minutes. You could be there for a, a huge chunk of the match. You know, it's a very powerful position against uh, if someone's really good at closed guard and you go inside that closed guard, it's going to be hell for you, you know, and and it really does hammer home like, OK, do not get stuck inside the closed guard. And then there would be, a, you know, on the other end of that would be to target spar escaping the closed guard. So like standing up in base without getting swept in the closed guard and breaking the guard open. And then if you can do that, you can kind of that could also be another mini game of target sparring to practice getting out in the, of the closed guard once you're deep inside right um i think i think another methodology that we haven't really talked about here is in terms of competition based classes you can be a little bit more creative because the the people that are there i think are more serious about jujitsu you know if you if you have a comp class and I, i highly recommend that any instructors listening they do start a comp class because it is a different type of training, but uh, you can, the people that show up to those classes are generally more serious and they want to be there and they're not going to complain if you make them work hard. So, um, you know, we've done like circuits and things like that where we actually do get a conditioning workout in and then we go right into, you know, sparring or mock matches, which is something that's a really great, you know, learning tool as well as having someone play the referee because they also learn more about the, uh, the game for the, from the view of a competitor if you're playing the referee in the gym and that's a that's also a really great way to train i also really like you know of course i'm a big fan of the assault bike and i haven't used it for a while because there's been literally zero competitions to train for and i'm finding it difficult to get motivated to to go burn my ass out on the assault bike but when there is something to train for i love going on there and getting absolutely exhausted and then jumping right into a mock match so that will really simulate you know making those decisions when there's uh, repercussions like points on the line, there's a referee, there's people watching and you're, you're dead tired while you have to make these decisions. So you can, you can have a lot of different fun with comp classes and really mix it up. Whereas, you know, in a regular jujitsu class, you're probably not doing mock matches with a referee and, you know, going through the whole routine and ritual that is a, a jujitsu competition where you're bowing onto the mats and, you know, every, you're trying to simulate it as much as you can. Well, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, at the beginning of the episode, we kind of talk down on the old school approach of just killing all your students with workouts. And there is a time and a place for that, right? You have to understand your audience. And the thing is, if you're always training at high intensity. There are problems with that, right? I mean, one of them, of course, is just from longevity. But additionally, it's hard to insert new concepts into your game if you're always trying to win. So that's Mm -hmm. why you don't always want to be training at a competitive level. But if you are going into a competition, 
then you do need to have those competition classes to ramp yourself up. Because if the only training you do is relaxed laboratory training, like you would do in a regular class, you take that attitude into competition and you're missing a key variable that other people are going to have. So you also have to have that competitive ramp up. And a big part of being an instructor is knowing when to use which card in your deck. Because depending on what your students want and what level they're at, you might have to tweak and tailor the class structure to accommodate those goals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, maybe I can share something personal right now. Uh, so my, lately over the last, you know, four years, my main instructors have been Rob Bernacki from Island Top Team and also Mike Lee, who's also my business partner. He helped me start On Guard Jiu-Jitsu and he's a great guy. So they're both kind of the coaches in my life and um, they're very different backgrounds you know rob is not a takedown guy he 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 can he can do some takedowns mainly because he's gangly as fuck but he's like not super skilled in wrestling or judo for that matter but he can he can hold his own on the feet for sure and he's very conceptual so his classes will be more you know more theoretical and more thinking and and talking about ideas and then target sparring positions and stuff like that Whereas Mike Lee is definitely more of an old school judo approach. You're getting lots of reps at the beginning, you know, speed uchikomi, uh, resistance uchikomi. You're doing, um, you know, uh, line drills and you're getting that tough grinding workout. And, uh, you know, he, his, if you compare the two of them, you know, I've trained with them for years now and Mike Lee is for sure mentally stronger than Rob. Like he does not give up during rounds. He does not... Uh, he's never too tired to roll. You know what I mean? Whereas Rob, I'll roll with him and then he'll be, you know, we'll go hard for like 10 minutes and then he's absolutely exhausted and needs to sit out for like 10, 15 minutes. You know, he has not, in my opinion, has not pushed himself into those areas of absolute exhaustion the way that Mike Lee has. And Mike Lee's game, his understanding of things like alignment and stuff like that, the new age concepts that Rob's all about, he doesn't have necessarily those in his repertoire because it's an old, older school judo approach. So the styles really do contrast. And I don't think either one is particularly right or wrong. I think the best way is to sort of take the best aspects from both ideologies so you do have the conceptual approach but you also have the the exhausting grinding conditioning you know as as well and then once you marry them together you kind of get the best of both worlds uh, because i've seen you know i've seen rob basically roll and then be like dude i'm so exhausted like i gotta stop you know and i'm just like oh shit like your cardio is you know and and i rob i hope you're listening to this <laughs> but he's you know he's just like i just can't go I just can't go right now. And I'm like, holy shit, like you're really exhausted. Whereas Mike Lee, even if he's absolutely down and out and he's, you know, in a bad position or he's exhausted, he doesn't give up until the buzzer. Right. So it's, it's different and you get different results and finding that balance and that moderation between all the different styles, I think has the best qualities. And you'll also notice as an instructor, that each of your students is different. You know, they're obviously they're individual people with their own personalities, but they have their own skill sets and traits. And, uh, you know, they, they, they prefer different games and strategies and their different attributes and it goes on and on. So you, you kind of realize, you know, if you have like that really physically gifted beast who is super athletic, 
Um, you can focus more on the conceptual approach and, and strategies and things like that because that person's already a specimen, you know. But if somebody is super, you know, like like pretty high level at decision making, good game, but they break mentally during the rounds because they're exhausted, then it's like, okay, now we need to work on we need to work on the not fun stuff. We need to do the uh, conditioning stuff, the stuff that makes you absolutely hate jujitsu. You know, I was hoping to get Rob back on the podcast at some point, but I guess that's not going to happen ever again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? He did. He did get bronze at Nogi World, so I got to give him that. I mean, and he even said he's like, if if my cardio was better, I could have won that tournament. You know, and and I think he totally could have as well. It's just with him at a certain point. Um, he had some injuries leading up as well, and it really affected his conditioning training, I know, but, but he still had a really awesome showing, but it's tough when you get, you go into a tournament and there's like five, six matches and it, you know, the guys just keep getting better and better and you, uh, you run out of gas. It makes it really difficult to make decisions. So uh, it's, it's one of those things you really do need to to break your own body and, and go past that point of, I don't mean break your own body in a dangerous way, but you need to really, you know, stress yourself out and, and get some hard cardio training. in if you're going to do something like Nogi worlds or another major event like that. Yeah. I think the takeaway here is that there are a lot of tools that you can use to improve yourself and you've got to use all of these tools in your toolbox and you've got to know when it's the right time to use which tool. Now, this is a, totally non-scientific idea here, but it kind of feels to me like if you want to take a concept-based approach over the long term, that's probably going to help you consistently improve. But you also need to focus on the short term because if you've got a goal right in front of you, that's where I think the more competitive mindset matters. And you've got to balance those two and know when it's time to focus on the lab and when it's time to focus on competition. I kind of think of it as the tortoise and the hare, right? <laughs> the, sometimes you want to be the tortoise, but when it's time to compete, you got to dial it up. And I think that's a good balance. Knowing when to dial up and dial down again is a very important thing to understand, both as a student and also as a teacher. Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned, you know, it really does depend on what is the goal of this training? Is it comp training? Is there tournaments coming up? Uh, are the tournaments one month away? Is the tournament two weeks away? You know, all these things will totally change the training environment and what you plan on accomplishing. Is it a beginner's class? Is it an advanced class? You know, all these it's just so many factors. And and the great thing about a jiu-jitsu journey is because it is so long, you have a lot of time to play around with different styles and, and try new things. Hold on. Oh, my God. My cat just stepped literally on my fucking laptop. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck dick. Oh, God. Sorry. I hope we didn't delete anything or anything stupid like that. But um, Outstanding. But, yeah, you know, it's... It, it's, it takes a decade or more to get a black belt. So your instructor does have tons of time to change up the teaching and the training methods. I've, I've changed my teaching style so many times and it's going to keep changing, you know, because I'm always playing with different things. And some days, honestly, I just come in, I'm like, okay, guys, I just want to fucking roll today. And then other times I come in and I'm like, okay, let's, let's work on this. Let's put in some, you know, so let's use our brains a little bit more today. So it, it, it will change. And uh, not every class is the same and nor should it be. Awesome chat. Matt, any other closing thoughts you have on this topic? I do not. 
But if any of you guys have any questions or, you know, structuring classes, I think Steve and I were going to talk about how to structure privates and, and seminars and things like that as well in the future. Uh, you can always ask us and be happy to answer you guys' questions, especially if you're a patron. Thank you, Patreon. <laughs> so just to recap the mental models we talked about here on this episode, we talked about training with purpose. It's so important to have a game plan, an idea of what you want to achieve when you go into a training session, and especially important when you're teaching, because you've got a lot of people there who are paying for your time and to get the most out of that and to give them the most value, you want to make sure you put a lot of thought into that and how you can deliver value and things that they will actually retain and not just show them random techniques that they're going to forget immediately. We talked about making smaller circles, meaning that when you're learning something new, you need to separate what really, really matters from the peripheral details and focus on drilling and understanding what really matters. And once you understand those foundational concepts, then you can start adding in the rest of the details around them. And we also talked about predictable responses, which is such an important thing to understand. A mistake a lot of instructors make is when they're drilling, they'll just drill a technique in isolation. But what is often more valuable is to drill the predictable responses and to understand how your opponent is likely to react in a given scenario and drill the responses against those. So Matt, I got two questions here. Do you want a tricky question or do you want an even trickier question? Uh, Are we only doing one? Uh, Yeah, let's do one. We'll bank one of these others for another time. Uh, Give me the really tricky question. Okay. All right. I don't really know how to phrase this well, but I'll just go for it. I was hoping to ask about what the jujitsu scene is like in your area or Canada in general. You may or may not know that the Philippines has been slipping farther and farther away from democracy for the past few years, and less than an hour ago, our president signed a controversial anti-terror law, which allows for a lot of suppression and abuse of human rights. I'm scared and genuinely considering a way to find a future somewhere else. I had no idea who else to go to who might know about the BJJ community over there, which is why I'd open up the idea to you in case you might have any useful info to share. What, Duterte? This guy's not down <laughs> yeah. with Duterte? No. <laughs> so it sounds kind of, I don't, I don't blame people for not wanting to live there right now. It sounds like kind of like madness. My question is, how feasible would it be and what would it take to pursue a coaching career in BC or Canada in general, given demand for instructors and cost of living especially? So, oh God, yeah, it is pretty expensive out here. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't speak for everywhere in the world. I can say this about our particular area in Vancouver. It's got a super vibrant jujitsu community. There are a lot of gyms here, but there's also a lot of growth. And if you were to ask me, I would say that probably the demand is outpacing the growth because although we're seeing a lot of gyms, they all seem to be doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's probably room for another if you want to come here. And Canada's also genuinely quite immigrant friendly, although I don't know much about the rules of immigration. I know there's a lot of variables. You're going to have to do your research because it depends very much on where you're coming in from and what your background is. As Matt said, Vancouver is very expensive. It's an extremely expensive city to live in. It is doable. There are a lot of immigrant jujitsu instructors who have come to Vancouver and built schools here. I think it's a great place to live. I think you could definitely make a living here, but it is going to be very, very challenging to pay the bills when you come to Vancouver. And of course, I can't speak for anywhere else, right? Every place has different immigration laws and those laws can vary depending on where you're immigrating from. Yeah, no, I mean, there's 
there's a bunch of different questions that you would have to ask yourself. Like if you're going to come here and teach, I mean, are you good? <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't, I don't know what your rank is or your competition experience, but I'll say having a career as a gym owner and uh, having a ton of competition experience really helped me. So if you don't compete, then you may not be as easy to sell your brand uh, as someone who has a lot of experience, unless, you know, you have something special that other people don't have. Maybe you have an awesome leg lock system. Maybe you're a specialist with the lapel guard. Maybe you are whatever. You, something sets you apart. If you have something that sets you apart, I think it's totally possible. And like Steve said, I think the demand has outweighed the... What did you say, Steve? I think the demand is outpacing the growth. There you go. Yeah, I think that although there are a ton of new gyms and it certainly feels like more and more people are training, it feels like there's still a lot more room to grow because we see new gyms crop up all the time and they seem to be handling themselves pretty well. So that kind of tells me that there is a market for more instruction. Mm -hmm. But I, I also noticed that people are becoming more knowledgeable about BJJ. And I think that's having an interesting effect because you're seeing people that don't have good gyms uh, start to lose their students. Their students uh, realize that there is a difference in training and teaching and, and levels at different gyms. And they will uh, not always stick with a gym if it's not very good because they're willing to try other places. And because Vancouver has a very open jujitsu community, like you can go and train at different places and they're not going to call you a creanche or whatever. But um, because there is for the most part, an open policy, people do get to experience a lot of other gyms. So uh, I, I think there is definitely a big demand for jujitsu. And I think it's only getting bigger because jujitsu, you know, it's, it's not like a, it's not like a LARPing martial art where you're basically just pretending, but you have that immediate, you know, feedback loop and you get that immediate, uh, uh, you, you see how effective the martial art is. So I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is actually an interesting situation where being part of a large affiliation might help you because if you are tied to a big affiliation, then it, you might be able to lean on that parent organization to help your immigration. I am pretty sure this has happened before where, you know, if someone wants to move, if they are repping a gym as part of a bigger brand, then they can contact that brand and maybe get them to help them migrate. So that's an option as well. It's a tricky one though. It's a huge, huge decision. I mean, obviously I'm biased. I love where we live, but I definitely think the more the merrier. Absolutely. Yeah. Come on out here. Jiu-jitsu is pretty sweet here. Not going to lie. It's so much, it's grown so much in the 10 years that I've done jujitsu. Uh, well, I guess 12 years now. I can't even remember now. But uh, it's grown so much. Now there are many, many schools here and the vibe is really awesome. So, And I think there's still a lot of room to grow. Like you look at some of the other martial arts like karate or taekwondo and look at how big those are. I mean, jujitsu still has a long way to go before it gets to that size. I think there's a lot of growth room still. So I think that we have not seen the ceiling yet. For sure. Well, let's tie this one up. I guess the first thing to do is to thank the patrons. As Matt mentioned earlier, the patrons are the ones who pay the bills here. It means a lot to us. The people support us financially. It helps keep the lights on and it motivates us to do better. 
We're also trying to provide more value to those patrons. We've started offering direct coaching and seminars to the gold tier patrons. If you support us, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. If you want to get more details on the concepts that we've talked about here, you can go to our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got a database of these concepts, and we also link off to everything else that we provide. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store, where you can pick up gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, which is where you can sign up to our mailing list, and you can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. Matt, good chat. Hope this was helpful to everybody. Any closing thoughts? No, I don't. But these fucking cats got to stop this shit. Seriously. They're basically the co-host at this point. We need a studio. (laughs) Or maybe you need fewer cats. Yeah, I'm working on it. One of them's getting pretty old, so fingers crossed. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right. right, Thanks, everybody. 